0: Thanks so much for tuning in to the EAE Podcast, where we've reached episode number 20. I'm your host, Laura Rumbly. We're coming to you with this new installment in the series in mid-June 2021 with June being a month during which many communities around the world celebrate Pride, which Wikipedia defines as, quote, the promotion of the self-affirmation, dignity, equality, and increased visibility of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. One of the core values guiding the work of the EAE is our aspiration to create an inclusive environment in which everyone feels safe, seen and heard, welcome and able to contribute. So Pride Month offers all of us working in international education an opportunity to reflect on the realities of LGBTQ experiences, to learn more about what advocates in this area are focusing on, and to consider how we can help advance this agenda. Our conversation here with Ruben Avila Rodriguez brings forward the voice of the international lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex youth and student organization, otherwise known by its acronym IGLYO, that's I-G-L-Y-O. Ruben serves as IGLYO's policy and research manager and offers important frontline perspectives on the work being undertaken to understand and empower LGBTQI students and young people and affect positive systemic change. Ruben, it is wonderful to meet you and have this opportunity to chat. I wonder if we could begin with a little bit of scene setting for our audience. If you could tell us a little bit about what IGLIO is and your role there. And I'm actually also quite interested in your perspective on why it's important that this organization operates at a broad European level.
1: Well, so we are the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, Queer and Intersex Youth and Student Organization, so this is what LGBTQI is for us. Uh, We are currently the largest LGBTQI youth and student network in the world and we have over 100 members in all the Council of Europe countries. IGLIO started in 1984, and since then, uh, the vision of the organization has been a world where young people in all their diversity are able to express and define their own sexual orientations, gender identities, gender expressions, and variations of sex characteristics, and are also able to participate fully in all aspects of life and enjoy the respect and positive recognition around that. Uh, So, when it comes to our work, we work on, on two different pillars in the organization. So one is on empowerment, where we run specific training and capacity building programs for young activists. And then the other area of work, which is my area of work, is on rights. So this is where we conduct research and implement policy work in different areas that have to do with LGBTQI youth rights, uh, such as inclusive education. Uh, so yeah, so that, that's basically what we're doing in the organization. And this is where I can talk a little bit about why I think it's important that we operate at a broad European level. Uh, We work with European Union institutions, just like the Commission, the Parliament, also with the Council of Europe and with other international and more global ones like UNESCO. And we think that operating at this level kind of helps bend marching standards on topics like inclusive education but also help us share best practices among different countries and learn from one another. So so that's why we think it's very important to build this pool of uh, organizations working on topics that have to do with LGBTQI youth rights.
0: Very interesting. That really helps us understand the perspective and where you're coming from as an organization. I wonder if you also feel comfortable talking a little bit about your relationship with this organization, how is it that you became involved with IGLIO, and what it means to you personally to be involved in this work?
1: Yeah, totally. Well, it means a lot. I am just going to say about that. I started uh, working with IGLIO in 2015, I think, uh, and I started as a research intern there, thinking about how to tackle So personally, probably it came at the best moment that it could. I started uh, as an activist on LGBTQI youth rights when I was 20, so uh, like around 10 years before I started Atiglio, and it was always related to the right to health. So I had experienced violence and harassment when I was at school myself and bashing. And I had never been able to work on that before. I had kind of tried to do that in different moments of my life. But yeah, because it was too close to home, I guess, like I, I, I couldn't deal with that. So I felt much more comfortable talking about the right to health and, and what it meant to be HIV positive and all of that. And this is how I base my activism but then I saw uh, this position at ICLEO and I kind of applied thinking I would never like get it because, again, it was on the topic of, of inclusive education. But it helped me put many things into places and it helped me open up conversations uh, about what had happened with my friends, with my family, but also with people that had, had similar experience to mine. Uh, so it really helped me on that. This is kind of like the most personal part of that. But apart from that, I'd say that it's also been a privilege of meeting uh, with hundreds of young activists from all across Europe. And it's been uh, uh, a humbling uh, and inspiring opportunity. I've learned a lot from them. I've had this uh, privilege to share spaces and basically to learn from how to bring a non-critical approach to the work we do, a feminist approach, intersectional, anti-racist. So all of that coming to to the the work that I had done before. So again, uh, super inspiring for me and and very humbling.
0: It's so exciting to hear about the ability to bring one's passion into one's working life and have those things feed off of each other so productively. Really, really nice to hear. Ruben, you know, IGLIO's focus is on students and youth. Being a student is a unique time in one's life, a period of questioning the world, others, oneself. From your perspective, from IGLIO's perspective, what do students need in order to safely explore and express their sexuality during this unique period in their lives? And stepping back and thinking about this Europe-wide perspective, are they free to do this in Europe today?
1: Yeah, well, thank you for the question. And I'm going to ask probably by the last part of the question, by the last bit. Uh, So are they free? Well, I'd say that unfortunately not. Things are better than a decade ago, that's for sure. Yeah, I'd say that the picture is far from being positive. If we look at the latest numbers published by the European Fundamentals Right Agency, and I'm not going to like say a lot of percentages, huh? but uh, uh, just one is that less than 9% of young LGBTQI people nowadays are very open about who they are when they are at school. So we're talking about like less than 9%. We did uh, research last year, and 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 if we look at the experiences and at the stories and all of that, I I can share some of these resources with you so that you can hear from themselves. But again, uh, looking at a couple of numbers in there, we see that eighty three percent, so eight in ten people have heard negative remarks addressed to someone else because of being LGBTQ or I and 50 around 50 percent have experienced bullying themselves. So again, that is not a good picture. And uh, and it is far from positive. And, and when that happens, when you hear negative comments of other people, when someone attacks you or harass you or whatever, of course, you're not free to be who you are. Uh, We're talking generally about LGBTQI people, but we know that that happens even in in higher rates when it comes to trans, gender, non-conforming and intersex learners at school. So, yes, it is far from perfect. Then going to your first part of the question, which I think it's quite interesting, like what would they need? Like what would we need to change that? So from our discussions with members and with young people themselves. We know that there are a set of minimum standards that would be needed so we need anti-discrimination legislation policies and action plans for sure we also need curricula and learning materials with positive representations of LGBTQI people we need school staff that are trained to deal with school bullying experienced by LGBTQI learners and also like teachers Uh, that that know how to deal with that. We need data collection, so we need to know the numbers. This is one of the most uh, problematic things is that right now we don't even know what the numbers are. So I'm here saying like some numbers coming from the uh, the Fundamentals Rights Agency and from ourselves, but then council of your member states do not have that. So we don't know what's going on in there. We also need like policies as I was talking before uh, for gender recognition. So that's specifically needed for trans, gender non-conforming and intersex uh, learners. And then also we need information and guidelines at at disposal of LGBTQI people, support system. And of course, and that's something that we probably all share, we need like adequate funding for LGBTQI youth organizations so that all this work can be implemented. And again, like it is done by young people themselves and not other people talking in their name, so.
0: So there really is a great deal of work that's still required. I wonder if you feel that those gaps are evident at the level of universities in the European context, as much as they are also evident at other levels of schooling in Europe. Is there something that you can say about how you think European universities specifically are responding to the needs of LGBTQI students, both as a a community and as, as individuals within those contexts?
1: Yeah, totally. I think that the situation, it, it also depends on the university, of course. But the fact that it will depend on the university is an indicator of how boring the, the situation is. When, again, like looking at the fundamentals, like agency, I looked at the just before this interview and, and I saw that about like less than half of the people are open to most people about being LGBTQI or I when they are at the university, at the university level. Huh? So again, we're talking that more than 50% of the people have to hide who they are when they're at the university. We need to create education systems and a social climate where people can freely and openly be who they are, and especially if they come from... A place of having experienced bullying and harassment in school, like going to the university and not being able to like be who you are. It is a problem for many LGBTQI young people. In there what what do we need we need inclusive policies so again like anti-discrimination protocols and statements and things like that we need support and institutional commitment with resources with dedicated staff with lgbtqi uh, students groups and then also we need to bring that to the academic life meaning that there needs to be like lgbtqi studies programs and training opportunities for lgbtqi studies as well as campus safety of course but one of the things, and and I wanted to bring that in the in in the in the interview, that universities could start doing is allowing people to use their own name and gender markers in all the university-related documentation. We see that. This rarely happens nowadays, and this is still a reality for many transgender, non-conforming and intersex people who've changed their name or the gender marker, and they're still having troubles accessing uh, certificates with their name and their own gender. So again, this is something that could be changed quite easily for universities and it's still not happening. And again, yes, we know that some universities do that. I'm not saying that all universities do not do that, but the fact that it will depend on the university or on even on your faculty or whatever, tells you a lot about what the situation is and, and how this may be a gatekeeper for, for many people to be in different positions, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. And actually, the point that you raise about that administrative component of things, just the mere opportunity to tick a box or to provide information on a document, in some ways it seems so benign and so unemotional, and yet there is so much emotion, isn't there, attached to this idea of what appears on a piece of paper or how I look in a database, what my identity is in those in those spaces. So. From those very basic sort of administrative questions to the much more complex questions of academic engagement and social engagement in in universities, it sounds like there really is a lot of work that still does need to be done across the board. I wonder if we could turn to a topic of interest that's quite important to the EAE, student mobility and exchange, also a very uh, fascinating phenomenon in the European context we know that jumping into an unfamiliar reality through a mobility experience can really be electrifying and exciting but it can also come with some risks what can home and host institutions do to make sure that lgbtqi students have the best possible exchange experiences and international experiences today
1: yeah well i think that again like it it, goes back to the fact of allowing people to be who they are. And, and taking back the example that I was talking about, like a transgender non-conforming intersex students. So they should be fully recognized by their name, their pronouns, and their gender, wherever they go. And, and it is still not the case for many people. And actually, that might be, again, like a reason why some people do not want to go some places, because they know that if they have to go, like they will have to face all these barriers. Uh, So I think that building up and providing guidelines in this regard to the mobility programs is one of the things that would be needed. And, And again, would make sure that students can have their best possible exchange experience. Also, and again, like going back to the anti-discrimination policies, so having anti-discrimination policies, implementing them, but also having dedicated staff, dedicated people or systems where like someone who has experienced bullying, discrimination, whatever, can go to. They are trained on that. They know how to deal with that, and they know how to mediate with some of all these bureaucratic or other like uh, or or the home spaces that they could help them deal with. I think that's that that's something that could definitely be done, shouldn't be that difficult. And again, like don't like do them in cooperation with LGBTQI youth organizations, like who can participate, who have the expertise, who can like uh, be supporting all of that work from uh, yet yeah, their own experiences.
0: This is very good advice. Uh, working directly with uh, co-creating with um, the interested parties seems like a very fundamental part of the story. Iglio, from my understanding, is a very international organization by definition. Your leadership itself represents a range of different cultures and national backgrounds. How does the international or intercultural makeup of your leadership, your membership, your target audiences, all of that, enrich and complicate your work?
1: Yeah, well, from my side, I could only see that as an app. I think that indeed we represent a wide range of people. Uh, but what's most important part of that is that we represent LGBTQI uh, young people in all their diversity, and that enriches our work. I guess the easiest way to put it this is with an example. Uh so we had work, for instance, like uh, when I joined Igloo, Igloo had work for many years on intersectionality and yet our events and us as an organization were failing to bring a real anti-racist perspective to our work in a way that was meaningful. So because of that, and I remember that like, uh, so in 2018 or 19, well, one of our members very recently whose representative is now on Iglio's board, asked Iglio to build up an anti-racist task force that would provide us with concrete recommendations on things that would need to happen for our work to really apply an intersectional approach and change ways in which we operate that might leave some of us out. And we're currently working on that. And this will have an impact on our empowerment work that I was talking about before, but also on our rights work and also on our engagement and and on the members that we reach to and all of that. So again, this is definitely an asset to us as an organization, the fact that we can bring different people with different backgrounds with different experiences and and that we all work together towards this same objective which is like representing LGBTQI people in all of our diversity and I was also talking before and that's also something that it's quite important for the rights work like uh, about this uh, sharing best practices and learn from one another. And I think that sometimes, it's, it's not always like that, but sometimes in international organizations, there's always like, and I've been in, in meetings and in institutions where they often like Central and Northern Europe like have, have some sort of things going on and then they can kind of teach other members uh, in a patronizing way, in a sense where North teaches uh, what other parts of the world should be doing. And again, like this is totally not the approach that we're following because what we see actually is like in places where people might have to face like more hostile climates are where there are more resilient practices and where we can learn a lot from youth organizations operating in those systems that can actually like be teaching other other countries how to do things in in such a, an experience. So, so again, like that's something that... I had never worked on an international level before coming to IGLIO and learning from that and kind of seeing that happening, it's it's just, again, like it's one of the most enlightening experiences that I've had so far in in my career. So so super happy to be able to to see that.
0: Ruben, I am super happy to be able to chat with you today. Thank you so much for talking to us about IGLIO's work and all the different objectives um, and angles in which you're trying to advance this super important agenda. No,
1: thank you. Thank you for the invite. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Like uh, It's been super nice.
0: That was Ruben Avila-Rodriguez, Policy and Research Manager for IGLIO, the international lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex youth and student organization. More information about IGLIO's work and some resources generated by the EAE in relation to LGBTQ issues can be found in our session notes for this episode. I really hope you'll check those out. With the end of this month of June now in sight, we hope you're paying close attention to the early bird registration deadline, that's June 30th, for the upcoming EAIE Community Exchange virtual conference and exhibition. The Community Exchange will feature more than 70 sessions with over 200 speakers from 45 different countries. All of this along with all-day networking with fellow international educators. We very much hope you'll join us for this dynamic four-day virtual event. Again, register by June 30th to save on your fee. The EAE website has all the details on this. That's www.eae.org. Our next podcast episode will be available in two weeks. Subscribing to our series keeps us coming automatically your way. And of course, we greatly value any feedback or suggestions you might wanna send our way please write to us at info at EIAE.org. For now, thank you again for listening and all good wishes to you from the EAE.